Praise God. Okay. See, this already sounds like contrast language. I mean, contract language, doesn't it? Key contrast between old, new covenant government and culture. A lecture by Larry McKnight. <laughs> Let's see where it goes. Okay, so here are some important areas of contrast in the old and new covenants, and the government presents these and other contrasts. Um, I've had some amazing, um, amazing interaction as we've gone through the series, and, and it's helped me, helped me learn, helped me grow, helped me think. And so the first thing I want to say before we get into this and is the reason that I don't want you thinking about this discussion about the New and Old Covenants as contracts is because they are not. They are relational structures. They're how God relates to people. And I want to go back into one that's not as controversial to try to illustrate my point so we can move through this without the temptation to uh, compare these things and cause them to compete with one another. Uh, in Noah's Covenant, God said, I'm never going to again destroy all the living things on the earth, even though the thoughts and intents of man are continually inclined towards evil still. That was the problem that led up to the decay of the earth preceding the flood. But the covenant was established by God that he wasn't ever going to do that again, and then he slung his bow in the sky, and we live under the protection of that today. So even if you have a big rain and your basement floods, it, it's not a precursor to the end of the world by water. It's that, it's that simple and that serious. And, and the interesting thing about it is that God said in, uh, in Noah's covenant, if you read it back there in Genesis 6, 7, 8 there, he said, not when you see the rainbow, you can remember my covenant. He says, when I see the rainbow, I will remember the covenant I made. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. So it's not, and this is the thing I want to get away from, because I spent my whole life living as if the whole of the Scripture was uh, an information base that, you know, I was in right standing if I had the majority of it, uh, at least all the important parts, right. But the truth is, this is a book of revelation about God's love for us and revelation for us. And so in that covenant, um, it's God that's keeping an eye out for the covenant symbol. Men all over the world could forget what that meant. And he would remember. Amazing. Same thing with Abraham. God said, Abraham, get ready. I want to make a covenant with you. And he says, go get these animals and split them and lay them out. And then God waited or God initiated a deep sleep on Abraham. And he lay there snoring and dreaming while God made the covenant. And God then kept reminding Abraham, saying, hey, look at the stars. Hey, look at this. Hey, look at that. Hey, look at this. But God's the one that creates covenants. We don't. We don't. So as we compare these two covenants, that's why I think it's okay to think of it like a government. And I know I've told all you guys that I think we ought to think of the New, New uh, Testament like, like a country with a culture and a government. And that makes it easier to understand the, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, because it too was a country. And it, too, was a, uh, a culture. Okay, So here's some contrast. The contrast, the first one we're going to look at is the covenant and governor, government partners. The second one is the administrators. And again, so think about it as a government, and you'll, you'll understand, that, you'll have a place to put that thought. 
The third one we're going to look at is the facilities. <laughs> now, now, this is when it started really going, oh, this is going to be like a contract. It's going to be like a homeowner's association or something. No. The facilities, I'm talking about the, the two sanctuaries, but it's okay to think about the facilities. Okay? And then the other one, the last one that we're going to look at is the resources. So I hope that by recalling the beauty of the covenant and the, and the classic covenant symbol that still we get to see every time it rains, and, and, and God goes, okay, well, I'll shut that rain down. That's enough. I'm not going to flood the world, you know? Anyway, all right, so here's the first one, the covenant partners. In the previous covenant, the partner was Israel with God. Okay, And Israel represented themselves, but they also represented all of humanity. The original intent, all the discussion about God was that you're going to be a, a nation of kings and priests. And you're going to represent me to everybody else. And there were provisions all throughout that culture, all throughout the law, of what to do with the Gentiles when they came in, what to do with the, the non-Jews, and how to receive them, and all that kind of stuff. So, the problem with this covenant... They got, they got worked out eventually, was that the human partners turned out to be unfaithful and unable to fill their covenant role. Now, the result of that was a broken covenant. Now, one of the conversations that I had, I had with Holly, and Holly, I was tempted and may still be to have you come up here and explain what you explained on Tuesday night, but I'm not going to do it unless I really botch it. So if I don't get it across... You come up here and tell me. Tell us, okay? But this was like, this was like really a, a revelation changing thing that we had a discussion about Tuesday night. One of the reasons, uh, one of the things we have to avoid if we are to embrace anything in the scripture is false parallels and false comparisons. And so we were working through, like we do on Tuesday night, and those of you that join, you know what it's like. We were working through it, and, and Holly sits there and she's, She's thinking, and, and then all of a sudden she starts speaking, and she brought out this reality, and an absolute reality, that one of the things that she sensed that I was struggling with was I was comparing the new covenant with the law, right? But the law is only a part of the old covenant. That means that there could be a number of things in the old covenant that, in fact, like the writer of Hebrews says, is old and is beginning to vanish, but it doesn't nullify all the law. Some of the law wasn't even relevant later in Israel's history as David was taking over rule and stuff like that. So to think of the law as this religious monolithic that is either all or nothing is a product, I think, of us kind of having an all or nothing kind of salvation mentality growing up in that in the, in the western church where uh you know you either you either accept jesus and say a certain prayer and then everything you do didn't matter and now you know whatever but anyway it, what, what holly said she just sat there and she said i think we're making that mistake that we're not talking about the covenant and the structure of that covenant and you didn't use these words but the but the mechanics of that covenant some of those are passing away because they involved a tabernacle and they involved things that don't exist anymore. But the law, all right, so where's the law in the new covenant? Well, it's right dead center in the middle of it. The law. The law is now in our hearts and in our minds. It wasn't abandoned. It was put in here. 
So the difference between the old covenant relationship with law and the new covenant relationship with the law is probably not the law itself. It's probably the internal or external nature of that law or how that law gets applied. And some of the cultural things that were purely a part of the structure of the tabernacle. In other words, we don't have to, we don't have to line every community up in the world in the way that the 12 tribes of Israel set up. Now, if you got a big piece of property and want to start a town, lay it out like that, I got no issue with it. But it's not, that's not what everything's hinging on anymore. And you don't have to stay mobile all the time. You don't have to move every time the uh, weather manifestation over the centerpiece in your community moves. These are all super important things, but they were things about a relationship that, uh, well, for instance, even the manna stopped when they went into Jordan. But the manna was a part of the ordinances of the formation of the nation when they came out of Israel. Gathered on six days, don't gather it on the seventh. If you gather it on the seventh, you're going to get in trouble, blah, blah, blah. So, so things become obsolete, and it's such a hard word. And we were, you know, vanishing away was one of the words we talked about. But, but things move progressively as God is, is, is uh, cultivating the culture and the relationship between us. And so anyway, it was a really revelatory thought for me. It was really a beautiful thought because the danger that I was in by seeing that linkage too directly between the new covenant replacing the law and not the old covenant was that I would be seeing things where they weren't and I'd be looking for things and I'd be missing things that were supposed to be in my heart now instead of outside of me. See the point? So we in the new covenant, under the government of the new covenant right now, we have a chance to operate in a more intimate relationship with the fundamentals of that old covenant than the Israelites ever did because they were struggling through this. Now in the new, here's the difference. The Israelites were half partners, or were full partners actually, in the old covenant. But Paul says in Romans what... uh, um, what the law couldn't do. Maybe Paul even makes that mistake. Who knows? <laughs> Equating those two. We'll see. I don't think so. Uh, what the law couldn't do uh, in that it was weakened by sinful flesh, God did by sending his son. So that's kind of a, a theological statement about this. So in this case, Israel representing themselves and humanity. And that's something I'd never seen. Because, oh my gosh, cut these guys some slack. They were supposed to represent the invisible Yahweh to the rest of the world. That's a big job. That's a really big job. Huh? They did end up, uh, well, you know, in some ways they, they, they showed him off a, a bunch. I mean, for instance, even while they were in exile, Nebuchadnezzar saw them enough, saw God enough to change his heart. And so... You know, again, I say, I'm going to cut them some slack because I don't know what their records going to look like stacked up against mine. But over here, we have a different situation. Think about this. This is one of the, the, the huge contrasts that we have to give ground to. Jesus is not only representing himself as the Israelites were representing themselves. He is representing all humanity as well. He's the covenant partner across from his father or across from God, however you want to put it. He is the covenant partner that now represents humanity. Only he has an enormous advantage. It's called the incarnation. 
Because in the incarnation, he took all of us, all of humanity into himself. He said in, in, in John 12, if, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all to himself. All to himself. This is a huge deal. So now, the human partner is faithful. He has already been and remains faithful and able to fulfill the human covenant role. That's a big deal. That's one of these contrasts. All right, now think back. Uh, those of you who have been here for a little while, a um, few weeks, remember right at first it says that uh, Jesus is the centerpiece. This is in, in times past, in various ways, God th- spoke through the prophets of old in, in, uh, uh, in various ways, but now he's spoken to us in his son. And then you get into two, and it starts going, wow, Jesus is above the angels, Jesus is above this. But he said, how about this? Jesus is above men. You know, uh, we don't see everything subjected to men like they were called to be, Adam and Eve were called to be. But we see Jesus. And then it gets into the, the Melchizedek order of the priesthood, and all of a sudden Jesus is a different priest, a bigger priest. We'll get into that in a little bit. But, but this is the first bedrock contrast that we had Israel representing themselves in humanity and Jesus representing himself in humanity. The difference is that these are God's people. This is God's son. This is the word of the father. This is the the creator of all things. This is him. And it talks about this right in the very beginning of Hebrews to make this point uh, through whom uh, the worlds were made, the ages were made. And then Paul in other places talks about nothing has been made that wasn't made through him. John talks about it in the prologue to the gospel. So this contrast, and they're carrying somewhat the same job, which is to represent God to humanity. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. How about the administrators, covenant administrators? Israel's priests and the high priest were the administrators of the government of the Old Covenant. Think about that for a second, and if you have any serious disagreement with that. Moses played a governmental role, but isn't it amazing that even though he was the deliverer of the nation, and even though he was counseled to have people, and there were elders, okay, but the real administrative government of Israel was all about the affairs of Israel, the righteousness of Israel, satisfying the the sins and the transgressions and judging at the gate and all this kind of stuff. Those were the priests. They were the priests. They were appointed from among these men, the men of Israel, and they had a lineage, and they were limited in time. We'll see that for a second. So Jesus is God's perpetual high priest. And this is why there's a contrast talked about in Hebrews explaining that there's a reason for this. These priests were not very well equipped. How do I put it? Psychologically, socially. (laughs) They were not equipped to do what this priest could do. He was, these were a priest called out of a nation, Israel. This is a priest called out of humanity. So the scope of his priesthood by the declaration of God. And that's what this whole thing, whatever else everybody knows and teaches about Melchizedek, I got no idea. I'm working on it, but uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. What, though, I do know 
is that this magnificent statement of a priest declared so by oath and the power of an indestructible life opens the scope of the, the priesthood of to time, once for all, to all humanity, that Christ is, is, is able. And, and, and you get that impression when it's not just talking to Jews in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy, or to find mercy and obtain grace. Why? Because we have a high priest who's been touched by the feeling of our infirmities, yet without sin, and has passed through the heavens. So he's a high priest for everybody. And you keep going in there, and you keep going in there, and you start to see, as I was reviewing 10 and 11, uh, 9, 10, and 11, and you see the, the, the magnificent, broad, but narrowly focused, once for all, thing that, that who Christ is, did this. Now, I was at a, a conference last weekend. Baxter Kruger was talking. Uh, it was an online conference, and uh, I was in my, my underwear watching it upstairs. It was very convenient. No, I was in shorts, not underwear. Sorry, I was short pants. Anyway, um, he was just hammering, hammering the, the centrality of Jesus as the creator who came to earth, carrying a relationship into redemption that he already had. He didn't, he wasn't at a disadvantage. He wasn't on the outside of it the way Adam and the rest of humanity was. He was the creator now becoming humanity. And so he's starting to get layer after layer of authority as the high priest to bring this stuff back into alignment. So big deal. Okay. Here's some, here's some uh, details to this. These priests, by no fault of their own except just being human, were limited by vulnerability to sin and to guilt, and they themselves required sacrifices. So the culture that, that was this annual atoning sacrifice and all of the various, uh, if you do this, you need to bring this sacrifice on the fourth day. If you do this, you need to you know, do this offering and so on and so forth. That, was, that wasn't an arbitrary religious thing. That was because the administrators of this covenant also needed sacrifice. They also needed for themselves. They also, now, okay, over here, there's, there's nothing limiting Jesus in the way of personal sin and guilt, which enabled him not to have to keep coming back, but he could make a sacrifice once. He could administer the covenant once as opposed to here having to maintain that in an annual cycle, a weekly cycle, a monthly cycle, a seasonal cycle. Okay? And so it is really unfair, the way I was thinking about it as a contractual comparison, that's not because what the result of this was doing, which was holding those sins at bay, uh, helping those people have a relationship with God, helping them understand that God loved them and was in their midst in spite of the fact that they had rejected that original plan out of fear okay now over here uh it's a once for all sacrifice and the implications of that are staggering and if we miss that we are genuinely going to miss something amazing but it means that the sacrifice for my righteousness in any given situation of the violation of of righteousness or anything like that the law it's always in my past it's always in my past. It's not like I have to wake up, be convicted, and go. So think about this. The implication of this one point. 1 John 1, 1.9. 1 
Uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. That's a different thing than waking up one day, realizing I've been sinning and having to go hunt up a way to get that cleared up. It's in our past. That's why one thing can pass away. For instance, exactly, and this was one of the last points that we talked about on Tuesday, a few short years after this was written, the centerpiece of that covenant and government was going to be raised to the ground by the Romans. And part of what this is talking to, to these Hebrew people, and part of what it was talking to, to the Gentile people that were coming in and studying this stuff and, and trying to understand where they fit in the equation, is that in not very many months, you can't rely on this system anymore. It's not going to be there. The priests are going to be gone or they're going to be dead. The temple's going to be gone and dead and it's going to be outlawed from happening because of the Roman situation. Yeah, Richard. Uh, one of the things that um, in my earlier in my earlier walk with God, I was doing this. The Israelites doing. I was fearful about whether I had all the sin under the blood. That's right. And so I was constantly going to Him, constantly sacrificing, constantly offering myself and forgiving and asking for forgiveness of whatever it was that I was involved in at that time. Mm -hmm. Until I came to the place where understanding that He did it once. And it was all, and that was it. Right, right, absolutely. absolutely. And I'd go so far as to say that when you were in that mode, you did still have a relationship. You had the relationship that was initiated by God. But your experience of that relationship, your enjoyment in that relationship, your ability to rest in that relationship, your ability to share that relationship with others, to be a king and a priest that, that reveals God to the world was greatly diminished, greatly diminished. So, uh, okay, um, now, this is a little bit of why. So, because of the limitations, these administrators, these priests, served, uh, serving was limited by a lifespan uh, and mortality, and therefore it created a temporary priesthood. It created a temporary priesthood. It wasn't, and this is something I'm coming to understand, and, and again, um, a couple conversations with Holly and Jennifer have helped down through the weeks. This isn't a temporary priesthood because of some arbitrary, lower-ranking thing that was done. God was doing the best he could do with what, he, with what he was offered by his partners, the previous slide. But it is temporary nevertheless, and the solution to it had to be a perpetual, a permanent one. And so that's one of the other reasons that God reached beyond Israel and beyond, uh, beyond uh, the Levites. So the Melchizedek thing, another thing that I don't know about it, but I am getting close on, is we have to keep in mind that neither Abraham nor Melchizedek were Israel. They were not. Not yet. Israel came out of Abraham's loins with his boys. They were humanity. Just like Noah was humanity. Just like Adam and Eve were humanity. And so the New Covenant, because of the, this priesthood, jumps back to embrace naturally all of humanity. Okay. Uh, it created a perpetual priesthood, and then down here, only offers representative sacrifices on behalf of humanity. And that humanity primarily is Israel. I'm not saying that Israel didn't have times when when people came in, Rahab was welcomed in. 
There were others. You know, Ruth is a story of that. So it's not that it wasn't there, but from an effective standpoint, these representative sacrifices were on behalf of humanity, which at that time was Israel. And it was a reprieve from sin. But as we move forward next week, uh, in, in, in 9 and 10, we're going to realize that the, the sacrifice of blood, uh, the blood of bulls and goats, could not take away sin. Within the culture and within the covenant, sin was held in abeyance. No question about it. People were walking without guilt. No question about it. But over here, this priest, uh, not just of Israel, this priest of humanity, this priest called by an oath and called by an indestructible life or validated by an indestructible life, offers personal sacrifice not on behalf of people. And this is the big mistake I made early in my career when I was a, 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 a penal substitutionary atonement guy. The whole substitution idea. That Jesus did this on behalf of people just the way priests sacrificed on behalf of Israel. No. He did this as people. As people. He came down here, and here was the human half, the humanity half of the covenant. And so now... The fulfillment of what all of the law and all of the, the, the structure and ordinances were there to foreshadow and represent and reveal from heaven about God's righteousness and about the destiny of men. All of that which couldn't be done because of the vulnerability of sin was done by man who is also God. Not bound only to Israel. He's Israel's Messiah for sure. He represents every bit of love that the Father has for Israel. But he also is able to reach out and cause Cornelius to start speaking in tongues before Peter even finished saying how how shameful it was for him to be there, but he's there anyway. (laughs) Right? Okay. So this we don't want to lose. Back up. Yeah, we don't want to lose. I almost lost it. So he, he offers personal sacrifice as both God and the human covenant partner. And his sacrifice is not a reprieve from sin. It's not, it doesn't just cover sin. It doesn't just forbear sin. It takes sin away. Now that is one of the big things then that we have to understand as we're comparing the contrast between these two covenants. Because in this, the culture of necessity had to be bit on this annual cycle and this regular cycle of managing, dealing with, and, 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 and overcoming the sin. This is going to be, and I'm not going to explain it now, but this covenant needs to be looked at hard and fresh because it is going to be built around an entirely different cultural objective. Next week, the last verse in Hebrews chapter 9 says Jesus is coming again without regard to sin. And it also says that it, once there has been a sacrifice for sin, there, there needs to be no more. Once there, for, no, once sin's been forgiven, there needs to be no more sacrifice for sin. So the thing that, that this was built and did a pretty darn good job for the nation of Israel, because these people stayed in relationship and, 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 and they weren't racked with guilt all the time and all this kind of stuff. But, what this did a decent job about, this did once for all, and now there's an entirely different cultural purpose that we're supposed to be living in in the New Covenant. And if we don't live in it, if we think that this basically celebrating communion with the blood and the body of Jesus is just to get us off the hook for the sins we committed, 
we are completely missing the point. Completely missing the point. It's no wonder that the world is little more than a secularized sin management thing through the way the Gospels preach most of the time. And, and with all my heart, guys, I want us to be different. I want us to have this huge, unexplainable, until we get into this, grin on our face and a disregard for how crappy things look when we're dealing with people releasing the goodness of God. Richard has been surprised by it at Burning Man. I mean, God goes beyond all decorum and everything. When I turned the corner up there in Salt Lake in that, that uh, heroin shooting alley, with the most sincere heart a little pastor can have, I wanted to bring Jesus to those people. I get to the first addict, I look in their eyes, and I have the most overwhelming realization that Jesus, you beat me here. You're, you're here with these folks. You don't need me to bring it. You need me to pick them up and encourage them and hug them and let them know. Listen. Listen to their heart. Listen to what He's doing. Anyway, that's why. That's why. Because the purposes of God to restore humanity to the glory plus the maturity that Adam didn't have, the glory that he lost, but the purposes of God flowing down through history is taking a big step forward for humanity. And it's the fact that all that this allowed for has been done once for all here. And now, all the time, the energy and the, and the genuflection and everything that we spent managing our sin appropriately prior to this uh, appointed day, that time now is free to be given to living as a son, as something. And that's what we're trying to study this for. That's what we're trying to figure out. Make sense? Okay, how about the covenant sanctuaries? This is just us. This covenant centered around a sanctuary on earth. Now, that sanctuary on earth was connected with heaven because Moses was said, build everything according to the pattern. But it was a sanctuary on earth. It was built after the pattern of heaven. It was located on earth, and it was ordained for a time. I was going to put, it was designed to change. Maybe I did. Uh, we'll talk about it later. But it was. Think about it. At one point, it was a tabernacle that was taken down and moving around. And then in Solomon's day, there was a temple built. And then after that was uh, uh, damaged and destroyed, they built another temple in Ezra's day. And everybody cried because it was so much less than what they remember Solomon's temple, the foundation built there. And then that temple, I think, if I know the history, kind of existed through the time of Christ in Israel, and then it was raised. And now the Scripture's talking because of this covenant and because of the, 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 the non-limited way, it's talking about we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about these things happening in our heart. All right, so the pattern preceded the image. And this is another thing that I want you to get about the covenant. This was built after the pattern of heaven. That's the pattern that preceded this image. It's located in heaven, and it seems to be ordained for the ages. Now, I will be honest in that I don't know I can absolutely tell you that. But uh, I think that when we read in Revelation about the New Jerusalem coming down and, and the, the, the Lamb being in the center and, the, and, and God being in light and all this kind of stuff, I think we're going to encounter that heavenly construct. I, I think it's coming from heaven to earth. Now, I don't know, and there's not a great description in Revelation about the way it was laid out and all this kind of... And I don't know about that. 
But I do know that in Hebrews it talks very specifically about things that were there, like Jesus pouring his blood out on that altar and so on. So uh, I think there's a good chance that that which was the pattern is going to be manifest in the new heavens and the new earth in the day that those appear. But here's some particulars. This was able to process temporary sacrifices and worship. They were temporary. They needed to be redone next time you had an issue, and they needed to be redone annually. This one was able to receive the once-for-all sacrifice and the worship. Once-for-all. Now, if Jesus had somehow come incarnate been offered up as a sacrifice in this tabernacle, would that have, would it have been able to process that? I, I don't, I don't think so. I just don't. I don't think it was designed for that. Uh, this tabernacle offered limited access. Oh, you got a question? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead and just pull that mic down a bit. Yeah, I'm finally going to have enough guts to ask this. Go ahead, sure. <laughs> so is it once and for all, or is it once and for only the ones that did altar calls and came to Jesus? Is it, is it once and for all? I think it's once and for all. I feel like it's once and for all. And, 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 and to be fair, you can talk about the phrase once for all uh, as, a, as an age-related thing or a time meaning that this is the, this is the last or the, the foundational and only sacrifice that's going to be offered for all time. And there are some passages that talk about it like that. They, they say if you go back on this, then you can't re-crucify because it, it was a once-for-all deal. Uh, personally, I believe it was like the other thing that were, were a lot of doctrinal scriptures and Paul's writings and so on that he died for all. Uh, Corinthians says that he uh, reconciled all. That God was in Christ reconciling the whole cosmos to himself. So um, that's but, a big question. So that means without having to go to the altar car, you know, you know what I'm saying? I, or, I know what you're, I know, or, what you're I know what you're saying and I know what I'm trying to, what, what I'm trying to say in answer. Uh, so the predestined, I mean, it's even when you get to the, I never had anybody really talk about this. We're going to, we'll talk about it. We'll yeah. talk about it. It just, yeah. if, if I, I would get lost in it right now. Yeah, no, I don't want you to. But that's okay. <laughs> but, but, but here's the deal. Thanks. Uh, there isn't anybody else to die for anybody else. Right? That's just a fact. There's only one Jesus. There's only one high priest now. And there, there isn't any other way. But that's good because Jesus said, I'm the way. And there's no other place where there is life and immortality. Jesus is the only one to have life and immortality. And so everybody that's going to get life is going to get it through Jesus. Everybody that's going to have immortality is going to borrow it from him. So it's a question of how and when, and then a couple other complicated ones that we'll talk about later. Yes, Ronnie? Would you be willing to say once for all for everybody? Yes, no question in my mind. Jesus died for everybody. I, if, if you're a five-point Calvinist and you want to find sympathy in me for uh, predetermined election, all that, I just can't believe it anymore. I don't believe it anymore. I never really believed it. I just held my nose and wrote the right answer on the test. But anyway, all right. Let's get back to the. I don't mind the question, and it deserves deserves a lot of time. Uh, so this was able to process temporary. That's once for all. This offered limited access to God. Limited access. Now it offered 
essentially almost all the access there was to God. It wasn't, because I don't think Rahab, for instance, ever came to, to the tabernacle before she heard God speak to protect those guys. So God was still out doing everything. Matter of fact, if you read really carefully, the whole the dialogue about God and everything crossing the Jordan, God, uh, Ray, one of the great testimonies of Rahab is that our leaders have been terrified of you for almost 40 years. Why? Because they heard of the great things you did. God was in there, and God told them before they messed up with the spies and everything, he said, I'm going to bring you in. You can't bring somebody to a place you're not. So God was in Canaan before the children of Israel were there. But they didn't see him. They saw the walls and the giants, and that's an issue. And this is, this is that same old dialogue about God can make this enormous preparation but we still have to go through it. It's just, in, with all my heart, I believe it's not as restrictive, not as narrow, not as exclusive as we've been led to believe most of our lives in Western Christianity. God is working hard. Death does not have the authority to keep Jesus from presenting his Father. It just does not. And there's no scripture that says it does. No scripture that says it does. Hey, guys. David, good, man. All right. This idea of limited access versus unrestricted access. First thing that happened with the sanctuaries when Jesus died was what? Baal was torn from the top bottom. The defining point of limited access was torn. Isn't that cool? That's why it was okay. And I'm sure a bunch of... Uh, you know, first century Jews didn't think this. That's why in the overall scheme of things, it was okay for the temple to go away. Because this provision now had made access available for the Jews and the Greeks. Right? Okay. Um, it's designed to be subject. Yeah, that's what I put. So I already went through that. And this one's of eternal design. I think it'll be coming. Okay, now, resources, our last point. I think it's our last point. The one thing characteristic resources in the previous covenant is it was external. They were external. The sacrifices came in from the flocks of the people. The uh, gold was given in an offering to make everything. The does anybody know what manatee skins are? Are they really like? Are they like really the those seal thing manatees? Okay, and never mind. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know. All right, so both law and the relationship are mediated outside the individual worshiper and community. So let me, this is a bit of a technical point. Let me just make it. In this covenant, in this covenant, both, not just the law was external. The relationship was external as well. And that led to some things. The relationship was external. And it was mediated by priests. If you were a good, uh, righteous Israelite, you couldn't just walk into the presence of God hanging there between the cherubim. Now, there is an interesting thing about that that uh, I am now totally confused about, which I'll talk about in 30 seconds. But do you understand what I mean by the relationship being mediated by somebody? Okay. Over here... Neither the law nor the relationship are external. They are both internal. The other 
scripture that I, I've always used to support the way I want us to think about the new covenant is the one in Ezekiel that I'll, I'll, I'll take hearts of stone and I'll make them hearts of flesh. So, Bernard, the law wasn't negated. Now we might, I know I have to study more what the law is because there are certain things, you know, um, that, that I don't think continue to apply. I was thinking about messing a friend of mine up with his teaching a couple weeks ago because he said, you know, that like weird doctrines that come out of the Bible, like having slaves. And I, I knew how to find the one where it says you may buy slaves from the pagan lands around you. I don't think that's still a part of what the objective of God is in building the community and the family. But uh, so there's there's ignorance on my part and study that has to come. But this I do know. I know that the best that this had to offer as passionately as God wanted to be their God and be their people, it was an external, it was a relationship that they got to see as the, the cloud or the light were over there and that, that the, the priest mitigated. It was external to the average life of the Jew. This is totally internal. The, the criteria in, in eight is that the law is put in our hearts and written in our minds. I will be their God and they are my people. Not by work, but by declaration. The law was in possession of the priests at one point. It is no longer in the possession of me. You don't need priests to mediate to you either your relationship with God or the Word, the law. Now, there are teachers, and they're gifted, and they're gifted to help. They're not gifted to control. In Ephesians, uh, he says, you know, there are apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, uh, until we all attain to the fullness and the measure and the stature of the glory of God. I think all of us that have been in, in charismatic and third wave stuff long enough have seen where those gifts inserted in based on this covenant as if they were a replacement for priests as if apostles were a replacement for a priest, have gone bad in every single case. And there are inexplicable scriptures, like the one in John where it says, you have no need for any man to teach you because you have an unction. That can only be fulfilled over here. All the lessons that I taught at the beginning of this whole find your voice thing a couple years ago about learning to listen and don't be afraid of the voice in your heart, it can only exist over here. Because God didn't have access to hearts in the same way. He didn't abide in them in the same way that the Spirit is able to let that happen. And so like Jen, last week I was so touched by what you said at the end that we can just keep coming freely because He really is for us. Now, is He more for us now than He was for Israel? I don't think so. But I think that the, the culture and the system allow for this incredible intimacy and interaction and trust and faith. And part of the reason is because sin's been dealt with as a foundational principle, not as a management principle. And that's what we've got to, you know, we, we cannot afford to lose that. So the law was in possession of priests. Here, the law is in the hearts of sons. And while it acts as a guide and it acts as leading us into righteousness and it's surely used by the Holy Spirit to convict and so on, it's not a weapon against our intimacy ever. 
And that's one reason why the Lord can say, I think, in this Hebrews chapter 8, uh, I'll have mercy on your transgressions and I'll remember your sins no more. Because it's not this external management issue. It's Him in the middle of us. Us, temples of the Holy Spirit. Jesus dwelling in our hearts by faith. The Father abiding with us because you believe in me. I mean, there's so much intimacy that's over here. Second, the presence of God is seen and managed in this covenant at a distance. That's why they camped around, one of the reasons, physically, why they camped around the tabernacle. is so everybody had a view that God was there. God's moving. God's not moving. This kind of stuff. Here, the presence of God is not just seen and managed at a distance, but it's known and pursued personally. He is for us and with us. What was the great declaration about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit will be, says Jesus in John 14, with you and in you forever. Wow. So then when Paul does a teaching about, uh, don't you know that you're a, uh, a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, he's not just using a word, a religious word metaphor to try to control our sexual behavior. He's speaking the truth of this transition because of the priest that we have. And it's super powerful. Okay? Uh, God and his people are one by obedience and blessing here. Now, this is one that could stir some stuff up, but it, I, I think this is accurate. The manifestation of the oneness of God with Israel was through their obedience, which is why when they didn't obey, they got in trouble. Exodus, I mean, uh, exile, Syrians invaded. I don't know all that I understand. I don't understand all I know about that. But I know that that the, the reward of oneness was manifest by obedience and blessing. Over here, God and his people are one by declaration. I will be their God. They will be my people. And by encounter. Then our hearts burn within us on the road to Emmaus. So, I've got more to study for that, but I think that's something there. Okay. So here's the final contrast. The old and new covenants and the governments create, nurture, and release different worshipers. Uh, an Israelite's, and, and again, this is not a personal judgment on how devoted or, or not they were to God, to Yahweh, but an Israelite's worship in a given instance was defined and it was acceptable according to that definition and it was over when it was over. And they could then walk in freedom, freedom from guilt, so on and so forth. But uh, it's a different kind of worship. The previous covenant, and, and this is not anything super special, this is me thinking and trying to put words to it. The previous government and government created community and servants and blessings. And I think that most of the Israelites thought this way. They thought of the, 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 um, the beauty of, the superiority of their community to the communities around them, and, and rightly so. They thought of themselves as servants of God, servants of, of Jehovah. And they were measured, that oneness, that, that union, the satisfaction of that was measured largely by blessing. Make sense? Okay. The current government creates family 
sons and an inheritance. And I don't think the family's the right word because I was thinking about this after I finished this today. I think the proper word there is kingdom. I think that this covenant creates an awareness of kingdom and sons. And then instead of just blessings, inheritance. See what I mean? So, I've come a long way in understanding why I feel that the New Covenant is so important. And I don't have to make it important at the expense of anything. It's the continuation of the love that God had from day one. And he, He's proven that He is able to love through... Um, real disasters on the part of people. The flood proves that. and The flood's one of those interesting stories that I'd love to talk to you about, about who do I think is where. You read in one of, one of Peter's epistles that Jesus goes down and preaches to the spirits in prison from the days of Noah. And it's the same word preaching you use to declare the gospel. It's not some other na 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 thing. It's really the revelation of who Jesus is. So, but there's a lot for us to talk about there. Don't don't if if you think I'm I'm weird or going off a deep end, don't judge prematurely. There's some amazing things to talk about. But so if we replace that, which I think I'll do right now, and I'm not saying it's not a family, but kingdom. That ties it more back into what the ministry of the gospel looked like as soon as Jesus got cut loose after the baptism. It's to pronounce kingdom, produce sons, and to declare inheritance. Make sense? Cool. All right. Last page, and I've gone long on this. This was definitely kind of a teachy thing. So, those of you on Zoom, feel free to speak up. Those of you in the room, there's a mic over there. What are some life manifestations of this? Got a question? Okay, Richard. One of the things I think we need to, that we don't understand, is what kingdom means and what that all entails. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would be a cool yeah, study would. to I would go itself. so far as to say that if those three are, are in any way an adequate representation of what the New Covenant presents us, we don't really know what kingdom means. We don't really know what sonship is. And we really don't know what our inheritance is. If you've grown up in a church like I did where, where the, the, end, the, the end objective was to go to heaven and not go to hell, then you had no idea what inheritance is. In, because you, what is there to inherit in that situation? Just a different version of uh, clouds or no clouds, New Jerusalem or not. You know, I mean, it was all crazy stuff. But uh, if there's if there's relational things that keep going on, if there's what you know a full fledged manifestation of what it means to be in Christ, to be a son of the kingdom, wow! Then there's some neat stuff going on then some of those imagery and revelation and stuff like that really takes on. So, uh, yeah, so kingdom would be there. So, you know, one of the life manifestations would be a bigger, uh, 
view a kingdom. Kingdom, yeah, sonship, and inheritance. Yeah, as soon as you were talking about the life manifestations, I was thinking of freedom growth. I mean, body, soul, and spirit. I mean, just uh, knowing that you're not caught up in the law, you know, having been <laughs> a stage in my life where I was caught up in the law. Yeah. And just knowing that believing and knowing that he loves me and the freedom that I have for that and all the growth that I had thereafter mm -hmm. was was wonderful. Real practical freedom. Yeah. And then, you know, Tim, I would suggest that, that that you probably weren't caught up in the law because you weren't being forced into the law. You were being forced into religious rules right. that people made like the law. <laughs> as a substitute. Yeah, no, of course, when it's enforced yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, but so, the, so uh, you know, after the conversation that I had with Holly the other day, uh, I realized that I had pigeonholed the law into a definition that didn't really allow me to understand what it meant at all. Because uh, the, one of the, the first criteria in the New Covenant is that I've taken the law which was external and I've put it in your heart. Well, why would he do that if there wasn't supposed to be interaction with it somehow? Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think we're going to start uh, manifesting every cultural thing or all this kind of stuff. But I'm not dismissing any of it now because I want to find where it's at in here. Frito! <laughs> yes, Mary. You know, Janet, um, a couple weeks ago, I don't know how she got it, but she gave it to me, uh, about, you know, well, we know we're peculiar. We know we're priests. I mean, a lot of people uh -huh. still don't know they're priests. I'm just talking from right. my experience. But anyway, right. so do you think if we realize somehow uh, that we're kings, that we'll figure out what kingdom is afterwards? Yeah, that could be one of the things. I mean, Does I that think make it's sense? probably the deal, sure. Well, I mean, how many people do you know that know we're kings? Yeah, if you, if you think that the end goal of everything is a business, you're probably going to think yourselves in terms of a CEO or something. But if it's a kingdom, maybe there is... You know. Are we kings? I mean, what was the answer? Because it was a question that you posed. Oh, about kings and priests? Yeah, are we kings? Are we kings? And Technically, here's what I think. I don't know. I, I think so, but, but what the Bible actually says is that he has made us into a kingdom of priests. And a, a lot of translations shorten that and say he's made us into kings and priests. But if you really look at the words, it says a kingdom of priests. And I don't know... But but but, we're also in Christ, who is the King of Kings, and so who is He a King of? And we're co-heirs, so that goes back to the idea of inheritance and kingdom. So, my my confusing answer on the fly is yes, I think we're kings, but I don't think it's because it's just of an arbitrary appointment. I think it's because we're co-heirs with Christ and we live with Him. Yes, Vicky. So a life manifestation that I think we have now as opposed um, into the old, is that we have the face-to-face -face relationships. Face-to-face? -face? Yeah. Okay. Hey, Dave. I think another manifestation of that is the word, and this is that has been dealing with me on for a week, is safe. 
we are safe, especially as we see the turmoil around us, stuff like that. In this kingdom, it's like being in this vast fortress of impenetrable walls. We're safe. Richard. Uh, we have the ability to see what he sees, and that comes through the prophetic. Mm. It also comes through access, and I think the prophetic is part of access. Uh, he's spoken to us in his son. His son has given us access. This is why I'm committed to ascensions, even if I have to work the rest of my life making them accessible to people. I, uh, uh, one of the calls, I've got a call tomorrow with, with John, and I promised I'd talk to him because he kind of got freaked out by his first experience with ascension. And I'm okay with people getting freaked out. I think everybody that has the Lord actually appear to him probably is going to get freaked out. I mean, I, Paul did. Um, everybody did. So I'm good with that. But I think I do think that an understanding of this covenant we're in and the stature in which we find ourselves, that's why it's constantly encouraging us. Because of this, this, and this, Jesus, and he's in heaven, and he's been touched by our sins, because he has sacrificed himself once for all, I can cross that line into access with God without the fear of having to manage the sin that would have kept me back there before, without shame, without those kind of things. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have any emotion, and it doesn't mean I don't have to deal with those things in Christ with the Spirit, but what it does mean is they don't need to keep me out of relationship. And, the, and, and so that face-to-face -face relationship, that safety, all of those things are a part of that. No, I just wanted to say on are we kings, but also linked with that is we're lasting father who is the king. So yeah. I don't know that we ever become the king, but we have rulership yeah. in the kingdom as sons. Just a minute. One other thought like that is, is that even the scripture says that, and it seems to intimate, if you're listening, that one of the high points in the wrapping up of everything is when the son takes the kingdoms of this world and presents them to his father and then he'll be all in all and so i don't actually think that king is the highest title even for the king of kings i think it's a relational thing that's going to happen all right yeah, absolutely. We're going to wrap it up here, though, in another minute or two. Well, but go whoa, ahead. I'm totally whoa. engrossed. Okay, so I'm uh, just, you know, good old phone on silence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but the one you're talking about, Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest. Is that what you were referring to? That's what to? I was referring to, yeah. Okay, Revelation 1.6. I thought I'd read this. <clears throat> Revelation 1.6, King James. And has made us kings and priests. Has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be... Glory and dominion forever. What else does it say? Uh, that's about it. Okay. Forever and ever. Amen. So then. So which was the verse that I was referring to? Made you us a were king? doing five sixteen. I okay. think. Okay. Uh, so I I, I don't have an argument with being a king. Yeah. No, I'm just curious. I mean, I love what you said. It's a natural lineage thing. You know, if, if if our father's the king and we're sons. Am I mistaken, or is Nancy uh, Cohen? Does she allude to that? Uh, she's taught on almost everything there is in the Bible, so I'm betting so. Yeah, but she owns this stuff. Yeah, no, she's. These are, see, these are okay questions. This is the beauty of the new covenant. We don't have to figure this out to be okay. We're okay, so we have all kinds of time to ask Papa what what he wants. Yeah. 
I would say that one of those life manifestations is less being less judgmental mm. that, you know, because God did what he did for us, it, it manifests in a number of different ways. Sure. Our goal isn't to point out someone's sin so that they don't go to hell for eternity. I think I must go back. Instead, we're actually talking to them about the actual good news, yeah. which yeah. is that God loves them and wants to be with them for eternity. And yeah. so um, it, it gets very interesting when you start to think about, and we talked about this with the whole dualism thing, I'm not trying to help you become your best self because that's really unhealthy and that's sort of that Greek thing. Well, what it does is it pulls your vision certainly down to a lower level than the kingdom level. Yes. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's Plus there's true. other motivations in a, in a full and free relationship with the Father who you know actually loves you. There's other motivations to be better than you were yesterday. Right, but then our concern isn't always... What am I doing wrong and what is he doing wrong? Right. You know? Right. All right. Cool. Ronnie? We're going to make this one the last one. So make it a good one. It's a threefer. Okay. We're more inclusive. More inclusive. Open to discussion. Open to discussion. And see God as bigger. See God as bigger? Okay, let me ask you a couple questions about this. Uh, the once for all sacrifice and all that kind of stuff, that obviously explains this one. What do you think or how do you define uh, a proper understanding and engagement with the new covenant making us more open to discussion? We can know that God is in everybody. Okay. And we don't have to force him in. Okay. So how they see him and how they've interacted with him can be part of a discussion that doesn't have to be shunned. Okay. Okay, that's true. And again, our standing is not based on knowing everything properly because we have... We're okay uh, to be... Not, we're okay with the part we don't know. We're okay with the part we don't know. Uh we can provoke one another to love and good deeds, it says in 10. So, okay. Excellent. All right. Well, that's great. That's terrible writing. I can see it on the back screen. Last call on uh, Zoom. Anybody got anything before we go? All right. I like having you here, Patricia. Thanks. Father, we thank you. Make the new covenant real to us. And I, I'm blessed that uh, it, it doesn't have to be real at the expense of all of your love and your interaction throughout history. Make Jesus central to us in this covenant. Let it be kingdom-oriented, life-oriented. And as we work through the last three or four chapters, of Hebrews, we're going to be introduced to two big concepts at least. One is faith and faith in who you are, and the other is this place that we come to, this heavenly Jerusalem, this Mount Zion, this spirits of 
men made righteous men made perfect. I pray that you'd open our hearts and eyes to the access we have to you and to the heavenlies through the new covenant. And I pray that you would open our eyes to the authority we have in believing and that miracles and cultural rescue would abound over the next little while. In Jesus' name, amen.